Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs>
emails on that, people asking how to get that done. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that segment. Yeah, let's turn that into a, a group seminar. I think yeah. we all have some experience with this now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> all right, and we'll follow up with our um, with also a COVID nineteen related claim. Uh, related claims, sorry, yeah, related claims. That's exactly the topic, actually. Um, and there's been a lot of um, talks on potential investment arbitration claims related from the whole situation. Um, and to people who are not, um, you know, specialized in investment arbitration or international arbitration more generally, like for example, my husband, when I told him about this, he was horrified. He was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is insane. It's like, can you tell people about the Philip Morris cases? Oh yeah. Even the state for the measures they took. Um, but it's their police powers, yada, yada, yada. And so that's exactly the discussion we're going to be uh, having later on um, in this episode. And then for the third segment, I will hop in and lead a discussion on compensation as an arbitration lawyer. And specifically, it will come into play due to certain cuts that uh, law firms have put into place to salaries and compensation packages for their employees due to this crisis so um and then maybe we'll broaden the discussion to talk about compensation in general and whether we're just entitled a-holes that are making too much money or actually when you break it down we're not making enough so yeah we'll see. I, I can advertise already now that i'm in the former camp <laughs> you, you are entitled a-holes camp <laughs> let's um, see let's see about yeah, that we'll reserve, yeah reserve my rebuttal for the third <laughs> perfect just before we move on we should also thank IA Reporter, which, as I think we mentioned in the previous episode, now is a good time to read up on all the things you should be reading up on, but you normally don't have the time to read up on, such as older cases and arbitrator appointments and breaking stories, uh, which you can do at iareporter.com. And that is, of course, our sponsor, which is why we're talking about it for this season. It's an online service focused on international investment law with a team of expert analysts that offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. And since 2019, late 2019, I think, so it's still a brand new feature, I Reporter launched this uh, series of case profiles on more than 1,300 investor state arbitrations, including easily searchable data on arbitrators, counsel, and key developments in each case. So, to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit IARreporter.com. And usually we'll talk about kind of conferences we're going to and where we're traveling, but that's never going to happen. So, uh, we might as well just get started. Exactly. All right. Okay, effects of self-isolation and COVID-19 more broadly on arbitration. I uh, rely, as always, we usually do, on excellent research, this time from Rishi. And I'll be quoting sometimes during this segment from various arbitration people, some of whom have written things uh, in GAR or in other places. And some are going to be anonymous because they're from the OGMIT email thread. And uh, I think we are still applying the policy we used in previous seasons when we talk about things from OGMID, we do not uh, attribute the information to the source in question because it's the, the Chatham House rules for the OGMID threat. That's just a, a minor caveat. 
one person who did write in his personal capacity uh, about this topic is Neil Kaplan. And I should also say, just in the interest of transparency, that Neil Kaplan is an arbitrator affiliated with arbitration chambers uh, for, for which I work. He wrote that the COVID-19 crisis has changed the way we live and the world may look different when the current pandemic is over. The way we conduct arbitrations will also have to change. So the question for us now is how should the conduct of arbitration change in light of COVID-19? What should the various stakeholders in arbitration, council, arbitrators, institutions, witnesses do differently? Uh, and as I flagged uh, during the initial segment, we uh, will focus on the hearings because that is probably where the effects will be felt most harshly. But there are a few non-hearing related things too uh, that we might just mention up front, some effects of the self-isolation outside of hearings. First of all, physical filings is now more or less impossible. So you have to file electronically, which I think I assume we are all in the camp who feel that this is way overdue and this might actually be a welcome side effect of the virus. <laughs> yes, that, like hallelujah. No yeah. paper cuts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I, there, there are, of course, lockdowns imposed in many countries and that means that physical delivery of, of communications may be disrupted or delayed and therefore now both institutions and arbitrators seem to accept electronic filings. Many, of course, uh, did that already. Some arbitrators have completely transitioned into electronic case management, as we talked about, and some institutions are also looking into that to various degrees. But now, during the crisis, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, electronic is now the rule. Both the ICC and, and ICSID um, have sort of moved, moved very strongly in that direction. They already encourage parties to file their submissions electronically, but now, during the crisis, that is the way to do things because there is no one at the secretariat and there might not even be a fully functioning delivery service uh, that will deliver things on time. For example, the ICC guidance note, which we'll get back to every now and then, is a very helpful document that I think we will link in the, in the, um, the text associated with this episode. It was issued uh, just a few days ago, uh, April 9th, 2020, where the secretariat, and I'm quoting now, expressly requires that new requests for arbitration, including exhibits and other initiating documents be filed with the Secretariat in electronic form. To mitigate the current difficulties for the submissions of hard copies, tribunals should encourage the parties to use electronic means of communication for the submissions and exhibits to the full extent possible. The note also expressly requires that communications with and from the Secretariat be in electronic form. And as you said, Sadia, this is hallelujah. This should have been the case already, yes. I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I think we a... were criticizing that just like a few episodes before, like even two, three episodes before this whole crisis happened, that some institutions were still requiring like numerous paper filings, which we thought was ridiculous. And even you, Jewel, was, you were telling by your experience um, just doing that right now. <laughs> yeah, like gathering signatures. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was an ICC case and you need the physical signatures of the parties and the arbitrators and they need all, they should all be uh, sent to the ICC for some okay. record keeping, which I don't think is a any kind of formal legal requirement. It's just a, an informal procedure that many institutions use that they want original signatures and everything, uh, which I guess there's some historic reason for, but now... Well, also enforcement. 
Yeah, oh, of course, you're right. It could be actually a legal requirement in some places. Mm-hmm. Should not dismiss this entirely. But <laughs> mm-hmm. For, for yeah. the time being, I mean, digital signatures should work the same yeah, way. Yeah, you, know? you can just have electronic and, signature, yeah. In most jurisdictions, yeah. Yeah, in most jurisdictions, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's better safe than sorry, obviously, especially if you're the institution and in charge of making sure that the award is ultimately enforceable. Mm-hmm. We also have communication with other participants in the proceeding. And here we have the DLOS COVID-19 checklist that Saudi has mentioned in the past, um, which says that dialogue among the tribunal and the parties is key. And therefore, the checklist recommends holding um, a conference call to discuss timelines and hearings and other procedural matters arising from the pandemic. And this also applies to the communication with the institution, of course, because uh, most leading institutions all that I know of uh, are operational, but their staff is working from home. Uh, so that applies to SIAC, SEC, HKIC, KCAB. Everything is supposed to run as as normal, but with the major reservation that people are not working from an office. So you need to ensure that the communication runs smoothly. Mm. And these institutions, it's not just the ICC. I think almost every institution has actually issued a checklist or a list of recommendation, which we, again, will rely upon in this segment and which you should consult as a party. Another point when we're talking about communication outside of hearings is something that Neil Kaplan uh, brought up, and that is the importance of being sympathetic towards others. Of course, not in the, I can already hear the the American lawyer thinking, why should we be sympathetic? That will be exploited as a procedural <laughs> mechanism. Exactly, yeah, what's that mean? So, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about, which is general, be a, be a good human being. And uh, the point that Neil Kaplan raised was that this actually applies also to arbitrators. And this is what uh, what he wrote about this. Institutions will have to make changes to their procedures in light of the pandemic. In particular, those that operate on an ad valorem pricing system will need to introduce more flexibility in light of all the adjourned cases as a result of the virus. Institutions like the ICC are sitting on huge sums paid by the parties by way of deposit, and arbitrators may have spent many hours preparing for a case that suddenly and through no fault of their own gets adjourned for many months. Dates are going to be at a premium next year, Mm. Side sidebar here. I think this is mm-hmm. very true. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we just assume that you can reschedule or or postpone, but we all know how hard it is with large cases in particular where you have lawyers on both sides and arbitrators who are super busy, who are now all of a sudden even more busy, and they have to figure out uh, alternative dates for for 2021. Maybe which is going to be a very very busy year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Back to Kaplan. Much more flexibility is needed to ensure that arbitrators are not placed in difficult positions. Arbitrators, many more of whom are now full-time, have to pay their staff, just as the ICC has to pay its staff. But to insist on the major payment being made only after completion of the case will cause unnecessary hardship. Cash flow is as important to arbitrators as it is to building contractors, which I think is a good point and often Mm. overlooked. We need some flexibility here. And in fact, uh, the ICC has noted that the the time limit for submitting draft awards to the ICC court and the ICC policy to uh, reduce arbitrator fees if cases are unjustifiably delayed. These still remain in effect, of course, but they will be applied by the ICC with sensitivity to the situation. So there is now some understanding for the fact that things will not be as they used to be. And this applies also to to the arbitrators who are generally just assumed to be fine (laughs) 
but of course are also being hit by, the, by this as as the contractors they essentially are. Um, another point before moving to hearings is about changes to the the uh, the law, essentially, uh, such as statute of limitations and uh, the freezing of penalty clauses, there are now in several jurisdictions already new laws in place as a reaction to this, which may influence the way the proceedings are being argued, simply because the law may have changed. And I think the main point here is the one that Sadia will address, so I will put a pin in this, because there might also be laws in place that themselves might be grounds for potential claims, in particular treaty-based claims. Mm -hmm. Let me just raise one other overarching point, which will be a good bridge to the hearing discussion. And that is that, of course, techno technology is now so much more important. Which, among other things, I don't know if you've thought about this or if you are currently in the face of cases where this is an issue, but the fact that technology is now so crucial may or possibly should influence which arbitrators are appointed. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is like extremely important yeah Wait, what do you mean by that i kind so, of missed that yeah so here um rishi dug up the the queen mary university uh international arbitration survey from 2018 which found that 78 percent of arbitrators had never or only rarely used virtual hearings right they, yeah. they may have experienced you know cloud-based document sharing and some video conferencing but not hearings with participants located in different locations. And in fairness, I think um, things may have changed since 2018 for arbitrators as well as for most of us. Uh, but holding a hearing in a complex case is so different from a work call with a handful of colleagues over Zoom. And it's challenging, as we know probably all of us from firsthand experience, it's challenging even for a millennial who is supposed to be well-versed in this. <laughs> But it could be even more so for an arbitrator in his or her late 70s who's not that used to computers, let alone com complex hearings online. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you need to, if everything is online, then you need to be able to, you know, review the documents at the same time online and be responsive to what has been said. And, and I, I don't know if a lot of people are you know, technologically <laughs> capable of um, yeah, exactly. I mean, it seems like basic things. But as you said, like even for us, it was an adaptation, right? To be able to do all of this online is, is difficult. I mean, in a hearing, especially when you're having conversations, you know, with your team at the same time and with the, you know, uh, with the tribunal, the other side, I mean, it's, 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 it can get really complex. Yes, absolutely. And normally you, of course, have support staff there. Mm -hmm. That applies to arbitrators as well. We may have a secretary or someone, an associate at their firm or someone who's working with them uh, during the course of the arbitration. But it's kind of a catch-22 now. You, you are, we're all alone. We're all sitting in our homes. And in order to, to get access to help with, with online stuff, you need to go online in the very first place. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so this... But you're not going to sacrifice the competence of a tribunal member just because that they're a bit incompetent with the with technology, no? Like, you'll just rely on the fact that you can teach them what to do. I think it, it may not be, like, the parties to choose a different arbitrator in the sense that it would be, like, the institution having to be, like, thought leaders in this and saying that all hearing or, you know, all witness interviews, for example, could be done remotely to save costs to the parties or 
um, all, I mean, we already have like CMCs or, you know, procedural conference calls that are just done as calls. You don't need to like go in and, and have a deliberation on that sense. So maybe that will just extend. But I think it might have to be the institutions that lead this charge because the parties, or, I mean, the parties could lead it themselves if they want to cut costs, but no one's going to choose a type of arbitration just based on the fact of what the arbitrators or, or vice versa. They're not going to choose to have a proceeding that they don't want just because the arbitrators aren't prepared to do it. I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I this is your point, and this is obviously not black and white, but I, I do think now that because it's not black and white, and it's, I don't think it's, you know, that the decision is between appointing an arbitrator who's competent and one who is good with the technology stuff, but not right. competent. I think right. th this might be a way to, to actually uh, open up a little bit more for arbitrators who have both. <laughs> Yeah, okay, it's, that's like, it's like when where there was this discussion about arbitrators being available. You want an arbitrator that's good, but you also want an arbitrator that's available. And that there's a lot of discussion about how this is a very important criteria. I think being technologically conversant or whatever the appropriate technological term is for that um, is one of the key competence, I think, now also for right. arbitrators. You could just have a Zoom call when you enter... Zoom? Ah, be careful with Zoom. You're not read all these articles about breach <laughs> yeah. of confidentiality. And oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will just give it up to China. Why don't we? <laughs> See, I would not flick to you because of that statement, Brian. Oh, you forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, discretion. So Sorry. Th this Sorry. is, a, this is a, of course, I'll, I'll get back to, to the, the ongoing discussion in the community because uh, this, of course, goes beyond the, the appointment of arbitrators. And it seems that maybe virtual hearings are now going from optional in the past to necessary in the near future. Mm -hmm. Let me read again from the ICC guidance notes. Um, while tribunals have often erred, 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 Brian? Erred. Erred on the side of caution and decided to hold at least one face-to-face -face hearing on the merits if a party so requires, the COVID-19 pandemic may mean that it is not possible to hold a face-to-face -face hearing in a reasonable time and that waiting until it becomes possible would produce unwarranted and even pre prejudicial delay. When faced with such a situation, parties, counsel, and tribunals should consider whether the hearing or conference should be postponed, whether it can be conducted by physical presence with special precautions, or whether to proceed with a virtual hearing. And here, views really seem to differ in the arbitration community. And Rishi has helpfully divided the debate into two rough camps. We have, on the one hand, camp virtual hearings suck. Yeah. And on the other hand, camp virtual hearings will do. And in the former camp, there's a lot of... Uh, well, in particular, it seems to be arbitrators actually criticizing the, the utility of virtual hearings. One unidentified international arbitrator writes, I've done four hearings involving video. In each case, it was suboptimal for the remote party and the arbitrators, even if the other participants did their utmost to assist. It is not an experience I wish to repeat for cases of any importance. Uh, we also have this, another person writing, in major international arbitration, who wants to see, quote unquote, the arbitrators and witnesses on a 13-inch computer screen, and who wants to hear, quote unquote, them, on the built-in sound system on that same laptop computer. Which is also a good point, of course, that you're normally most of us are working off a relatively small 
screens, which will mm. hurt this. But then we also have other people who are more open to it. And this includes Neil Kaplan in his, in his article that we already discussed. Um, and he writes that uh, surely video conferencing facilities should be the norm for all procedural hearings and case conferences. The same applies for early openings and interim measures. And Janet Walker has also written, I think, uh, a GAR article saying that virtual hearings are the new normal. Basically, we just need to get with the system. <laughs> right. And if you read the various notes and checklists that have been issued by institutions and others, the main takeaway is that this is a case-by-case -case basis. So it's kind of hard to say as, as a general statement that we should now move over to virtual hearings because there are so many problems with this, which I will get back to. But first, I want to just uh, use an example from uh, David Branson, who wrote an article on GAR. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, he's a, a DC-based arbitrator and, and counsel. Um, and he urges council and tribunals to avoid physical hearings for several months in the future now uh, during this particularly strange situation caused by the virus. And he made the example of the Skagit Valley Choral Choir. Did you see this? No, no I didn't see it, that. This is a very good a telling example. So uh, I'm going to read this in its entirety, basically. I apologize for that, but I think it's instructive. So 60 choir members gathered in a church hall and they wisely observed the suggested safe practices like hand sanitizer when they entered and they were all checked for fever or cough, no handshaking, no hugging, seating was widened, social distancing space, yada, 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 the whole shebang when it comes to uh, precautionary measures. Then they sang together for two and a half hours. <laughs> Today, 45 of the 60 members of the choir have developed COVID-19 and two oh, have passed away God. because of COVID-19. Oh my gosh. And this is because they were singing. Uh, even though there was a large room with high ceilings, they were singing together for two and a half hours. And the local health official stated that, I think we can still explain the transmission through droplet spread, because when someone is singing loudly, they project their voice and they also project their droplets. And David Branson writes that no one has ever likened my advocacy to a song or a lyric, but most <laughs> advocates are practiced at projecting their voice and modern hearing rooms, like those provided by the LCIA, the ICC, etc., they are basically small theaters. Uh, and the witness and the court reporter are unlikely to hear what the advocates are saying without theater-style voice projection. Mm -hmm. So think of the accompanying droplet spread as the advocates project their voices into these rooms with perhaps 30 people in the room. Uh, and the, this choir sung together for two and a half hours, calculate how many droplets will be spread over a one week hearing lasting seven hours a day. Wow. Yeah, it's a frightening prospect. Yeah, it's a horror story, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I think for now, maybe not so much. And here there might, might be some sort of common law, civil law divide, I think, when it comes to the importance of hearings. But I think we can all agree that just for the like foreseeable future, we won't have any hearings. Why would you say there would be a civil common law divide on that question? Because we're obsessed with oral advocacy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and civil lawyers will be, oh, let's go back to writing, writing, yes, writing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How are they going to understand me if I don't dramatically present my case? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That, that, I didn't say anything, but that was exactly what I was trying to just hint at and then not actually pronounce. <laughs> well, I was in a hearing and that was like, you know, they were deciding whether to do closing arguments or post-hearing submissions instead and... And one of the advocates was says, well, how am I supposed to present my case if I can't give a closing argument, an oral closing argument? Like, as if it was like, oh, and then they said, this is how 
this is what lawyers are made of or something like a ridiculous statement. What? <laughs> this is why we do what we do to make these closing arguments. And I mean, to, to some point, I understand what she was saying, which is basically like, this is the fun part. Please let us do the fun. Part. <laughs> um, but and on the other hand, it doesn't really make a difference in like sitting there and being in hearing. I mean, it, Honestly, it's the level of internet connection. Are we going to be able to talk and like, is is it going to have glitches and, and right. so yeah. that's going to be a seamless process? <clears throat> but if you're trying to interview a witness who needs translation on both sides of the microphone, on both sides of this TV screen, like you can't imagine that's going to be anywhere close to effective. But you're saving like hundreds of thousands of dollars by doing that since you don't have to fly everyone around the world just to see how the witness sweats. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And also, like, you know, people travel not alone, right? I mean, there's like you have the whole team, like you said previously, support team, all the other lawyers and support mm -hmm. staff that come with you to organize documents. I mean, it's not just one person no. traveling. So maybe we'll get to a situation where it's in between, like, it's not that we're going to cancel hearings altogether, but that maybe everyone want to have to travel, the rest of the team could be connected remotely or something, right. um, which, which, you know, could be something doable because everybody by now, by then would have mastered the art of WhatsApping, you know, messages <laughs> to uh, your colleagues when they're in a hearing an <laughs> argument or something, which is what people are doing now. No, honestly, yeah, I've seen some lists where people are recommending and I think it's pretty effective. It's true. If you are doing a virtual hearing, and you need to communicate with your peers that are not with you. How do you do that? You need to. Yes, this is a good bridge to my final point, which, which mm. is like, if you do proceed with the virtual hearings, what should you do in order to ensure that it's as smooth as possible? And here we have, again, the ICC guidance note. There's also the CR guidance note. I think it's called the CR guidance note on remote dispute resolution proceedings. We also have this Seoul protocol on video conferencing in international arbitration that was issued or at least circulated a few weeks ago. And Rishi has synthesized these notes and, and boiled them down to a few key points, which I think might be a helpful thing to talk about. First, what about the time zones that the various participants are located mm. in? This is an obvious advantage. We were now, I think, justifiably so criticizing the, the extensive travel involved in hearings. But it, it has the added benefit, of course, of bringing all the, the participants into the same time zone. Oh, that's a good point. Which is not always the case. And I mean, you can, you can do it virtually relatively easily if people are within more or less the same time zone. But that is not always the case. You may have one set of lawyers in the US, one in Europe and Africa, and, and then you can have parties or others in Asia, and you basically have like a 14-hour time span to work with. Mm. So some side or some participants may have to essentially work at night in order for the virtual hearing to function. That could be very problematic. Really point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know I've talked to people, I haven't had this uh, myself yet, but I've spoken to arbitrators about this who, who've had this very problem when they actually had to set up a virtual hearing and agree on like a compromise so that everyone is equally uncomfortable, basically. Some yeah. side would have to get up at 6 a.m., whereas some would have to work from like... 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Yeah, equality of the arms, right? So yeah. one is suffering, the other should suffer as well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another thing is, of course, this is just basic hygiene, essentially, uh, to do prior test runs of the video, video conferencing technology. <laughs> <Hygiene. laughs> <Sorry. laughs> yeah, yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> because this is, there, there will be issues. 
not to to badmouth the the technology and the, the service providers here, but you, you will have problems most likely. So you need to do test runs, you need to reserve time and, and backup plans, contingencies for this. And this is in the ICC guidance note too, that you should actually consult the tribunal and the parties about contingency measures in case of, of technical failures and disconnection and power outages and, and whatever. And uh, maybe some training could be uh, appropriate as well uh, for the people who lack experience with technology. And that also actually applies to, to advocates. I'm going to ask you, because we have two advocates here, uh, I assume you would need practice <laughs> to plead remotely as opposed to in the room, uh, not just for the technology, but also for the actual advocacy, You know how to actually convey yeah. your points when you have transcription and translation and people are spread out in different rooms and you can't really see each other. Have you had any experience with this so far? Um, I would say that it's akin to practicing cross-examination with a translator. Um, how to ask questions that are more simplified, how to pause periodically to make sure that the translator can catch up. Mm. Those those type of like soft skills I think can be equated if you're pleading virtually, which is um, don't just go on like a diatribe when the arbitrator is trying to like ask a question about something or, you know, like pausing in between points. How are you going to have your PowerPoint be reflected at the same time of maybe having your face being projected um, so that it's effective or are they just going to stare at a PowerPoint while they hear some audio, which is, you know, the easiest way to drone you out. So those type of um, playing with someone on the other side of a, a link Will definitely be a skill yeah and i i agree i agree with i think even more so than than before when when you are pausing and directing the tribunal to the appropriate pages and segments of things you're referring to exactly like brian said i think it's important i think there's also another point is people don't often think about how they look like <laughs> it's not <laughs> like you know what am i wearing or something like that it's just like the lighting and the sound like yeah. you want to make sure that it, nothing is disruptive. If, for example, the camera is facing, I don't know, just focusing too much on your face or something like that, it could annoy people. Like you just want to make sure you're well lit and seated <laughs> <laughs> before you do that. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that should also not be overlooked uh, is whether all the participants are in areas with high level technology and internet. Mm. This was put by a, an anonymous arbitrator again, uh, who wrote that in many arbitrations, even international arbitrations, a number of the smaller law firms representing clients still have less access to technology and less experience with remote meetings. It is therefore important in our conversations to remember that the great majority of international arbitrations do not involve big law firms, but rather local firms or practitioners who cannot claim the same access to technology resources like such large big law firms, which is a great point. And that applies especially, and this is uh, maybe my, my final point, when it comes to witnesses. And this is, I think, uh, maybe potentially the weakest link in many arbitrations. Because we do not, of course, allow witness coaching in international arbitration in most circumstances, or maybe even in all circumstances. And the lockdown is not very conducive to the taking of factual witness evidence by video, mm -hmm. because you cannot, you know, see the site from which the witness is testifying and who else is in the room and whether or not there is undue influence on that person. Mm -hmm. 
so this has to be addressed too. Uh, and that this this happened obviously before uh, COVID nineteen. Maybe we've all seen this in cases. And normally it's addressed by having someone else in the room to attest that there's no coaching. Or maybe just move the camera around every now and then to show that the room is empty. <laughs> <laughs> or you could have a procedural, like, um, you know, sign a document uh, with a declaration that, you know, you have not been, you're not being in contact with the team while you're being questioned and thereafter yeah. during the hearing or something to that effect. Do you think that's sufficient? I mean, I don't know. You'll have to find a way to make that happen, right? I mean, how can you control otherwise uh, the fact uh, that someone, like to take the earlier example, someone is have, receiving a WhatsApp message from the yeah. lawyer while he's testifying? So we, we I had one case where uh, this was an issue because f for reasons completely unrelated to, to the virus, the witnesses in question could not travel out of the mm -hmm. country they were in. And it happened to be the case that one of the party's law firms was a big law firm, had a local office in that jurisdiction, and they just sent an associate there to mm -hmm. sort of supervise the whole thing. So there was mm -hmm. uh, a lawyer present. And I, I've seen people suggest that you can also just use an independent lawyer, like a local lawyer who can do it relatively cheaply, some independent, trustworthy person who can just sit in, right, mm -hmm. essentially, and be right. there and and, and yeah. just attest to the fact that the witness is not being pressured or receiving messages during the examination. And this is, but, this. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, but right now, how would you do that though? You wouldn't be able to do it in this situation, in the present situation, to send someone over. Uh, probably not, it would depend down. on the jurisdiction, I guess. I mean, but most places are in some sort of lockdown, so I guess it would be hard. Yeah, that's a good point. Mm. It would be in someone's home, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> suggestions don't welcome. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I I actually watched uh, um, in the UK now under under some new legislation in response to COVID. Court cases are done virtually and actually broadcast. Mm. Yes. Which, you can watch this if you're a nerd. I was able to look in on the enforcement hearing in Askomstati versus Kazakhstan, which was an SEC case that we talked about in like 19 different episodes. And the enforcement is still ongoing and it's in the UK, among other places. And it was really interesting watching very good lawyers on both sides, especially during the cross-examination of witnesses. Uh, it seemed to have been a challenge, but I think they did a great job. And I'm sure there are more cases like this upcoming if you want to if you want to watch. Hmm. Great. Maybe you could link that. Yes, I, will, I, I think actually that particular thing I think is on YouTube. I don't know if that's part of, of this transparency thing right now or if there's like some external person was smart enough to record it and put it on YouTube. We can link that because that, that is interesting to see that. Yeah, yeah I watched that. <laughs> like instead of the Netflix episode. Instead of, yeah, instead of <laughs> Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, Tiger King. No comment. <laughs> Uh, okay, I think that's it for now. There are more things one could talk about, but we we have to keep people's attention. I think even during during these times. <laughs> for, for example, can you challenge an award because one party could not cross-examine in in the room, whereas one part with the other party could? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Probably not. There are a few court cases on this, but. We can leave that question hanging for the creative. And, and also, like, it's so funny. Like, sorry, and then we can we can stop. But I was thinking, like, guerrilla tactics. Like, what if you don't want to? You know, you it's in your interest to kind of say, "Oh no, I lost internet connection." 
then she just <laughs> oh yeah the, 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 the dog yeah. ate my homework defense <laughs> yeah exactly like if you're you're blo- because obviously if you are i mean it's not obvious but i imagine that if you are respondent you don't want necessarily the, re- the hearing to go ahead in certain circumstances right so you would be arguing for delaying or postponing or whatever in in the present circumstances i'm saying um and and then and then if you if the tribunal is like no 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 you got to go ahead you got to go ahead with the the hearing and you do it and then what if you voluntarily make up excuses like technical def- difficulties to say see i told you so like virtual hearing is not working but it's just you behaving that way that would be horrendous if people mm. start doing that yes not giving anybody any ideas yeah. <laughs> but that would be horrible <laughs> to act in bad faith in your arbitration yeah, exactly. I think in general we can rely on the the professional conduct of of experienced counsel to actually behave the way they are supposed to be behaving. It will oh, it will, so it will hurt them a lot. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, should we move on to uh, investment yeah. treaty arbitrations? Yes. The COVID-19 related potential investment arbitration claims, this is what we're going to speak about. So I could go on for hours on this. So I am not going to do a lengthy presentation, uh, but I, we, I nevertheless think it is important to discuss um, this, this topic. So just a little bit of background again, um, as of just two days ago, so 11 April 2020, there were at least 1.7 million confirmed cases of coronavirus and uh, 103,000 people have died. Um, and it was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. And we're only a few months into the crisis uh, now and the governments uh, over, you know, around the world have already enacted a wealth of emergency measures in response to COVID-19 and that might affect foreign investors. And in fact, measures that they have taken and measures that maybe they have not taken. And we'll discuss a little bit more about that. So what kind of measures are we talking about? I'm not gonna here make a list of um, the measures that governments have taken, but just cite a few. Um, the first one, of course, the one that we are experiencing, all three of us right now, which is quarantine. Um, and that, of course, impacts uh, business activities because some businesses have been asked to close um, other than those that are essential. There's also, also been sorry, um, examples of suspension of payment of debt obligation. So that is mortgage loan repayments, uh, imposing export controls, taking control of private healthcare facilities, for example, in Spain. Um, in the U.S., more specifically, the government, for example, has ordered 3M, General Electric, and Medrotonic, Medtronic, sorry, um, which are all U.S. companies to produce personal protective equipment under the De- Defense Production Act. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's also an interesting thing that, that has been ordered. Uh, there's been also border closures, um, in, you know, around... Um, Europe, but also um, around the world more generally. Um, The European Union is considering nationalization of key industries as part of its bailout packages, including airlines. Um, And in Italy, more specifically, because it's been in the news so much, um, there was law decree number 18 of 17 March 2020, 
which uh, passed a, a series of, 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 of emergency measures, including the requisition of hotels and medical equipment, um, the mandatory lockdown, like we talked about, uh, the application to transportation contracts of rules on frustration set out in the Italian civil code, uh, with overriding monetary rules that apply irrespective of the governing law of the contract. So that's an interesting one. And more generally, the right of the government to intervene in the governments of strategic companies, like pharmaceutical companies, for example. Um, and there's another um, example that I would like to give is the uh, Peruvian example, just because it was in the news recently. And thanks, Joe, for pointing um, this GAR article to me. Um, there has been a suspension of the collection of toll fees on the country's road network uh, by um, a legislation that was passed recently in Peru. And so as a result, uh, some government officials, uh, you know, said that they might bring um, some investment arbitration cases. So um, they might, you know, consider amending the legislation. Um, there are 74 toll roads in Peru and 24 of them are run by state or company, which has already suspended fees. And operators of 32 toll roads have also done this voluntarily. So there's a question of potential claims arising out of those concession contracts um, more generally. So what kind of claims are we talking about here? Uh, we've said treaty claims, of course. Uh, in this last example, I thought I talked about concession contracts. So it's not just treaty claims. It could also, in fact, be contractual claims. If you have, um, you know, of course, an arbitration clause that would enable you to launch um, investment arbitrations. So what kind of case, what kind of, you know, breaches are we talking about here? So like the previous segment I did on uh, green deals, uh, it's always the same list of, uh, you know, treaty protections. Uh, you know, A, Jill, which one are we talking about here? Yeah, expropriation, fair and equitable there treatment. We go. <laughs> exactly. It's always the same, same stuff. So expropriation. Um, uh, expropriation is, of course, you know, direct expropriation when you take direct property. And most of the cases, investment treaty arbitration relate to indirect um, expropriation. Um, and so um, what we mention as indirect expropriation is uh, in the context here of coronavirus, uh, if there is a sense of a forced transfer of ownership, uh, which is maybe unlikely, uh, you know, we might talk about indirect expropriation uh, as a result. Now, for example, why are we not talking about direct expropriation? Well, if we take the Spanish example here, uh, the Spanish government has taken control, for example, of the private healthcare facilities, but has not taken ownership of those mm. facilities, okay? Um, so in terms of indirect um, expropriations where a state deprives an investor in whole or in significant parts, as the Metaclet Tribunal put it, uh, of, and I'm quoting here, the use of reasonably to be expected economic benefit of property. Um, so the investment is said to have been expropriated indirectly uh, through different forms. It could include the repudiation of a concession, displacement of the investor's management, Imposition of severe taxes, uh, substantially eroding profits, denial of permits, freezing bank accounts, etc., uh, etc., etc. Et um, so, and and what is important here is also that even if one measure alone has not 
the effect of expropriation, the combined effect, the net effect. Uh, that's, that's what we would say, the net effect of border closures, quarantines, other emergency measures that have been taken may amount over time to what we t- talk about here, indirect expropriation, which is also called creeping expropriation. Speaking of time, though, don't we have a, a problem here, speaking from the perspective of someone who's arguing expropriation with, mm-hmm. with, with duration? Aren't the measures we talked about so far that you've mentioned mm-hmm. generally temporary in nature? Like it's not the case that the state steps in and takes something over, um, but it's all just like touch and go. We'll see 30 days or 90 days, and then the assumption is that everything will be back to normal and the investors will be back in possession and management of their investments again. Well, that's a really good point, actually. So, you know, even if they have been temporary measures and lifted, um, the the mere fact actually that an expropriation is later remedied does not foreclose the right. possibility of a claim or to excuse the state's duty to compensate in particular, right? So here you would say, you know, it's not because you lifted it that I'm not entitled to my compensation as a right under expropriations. Um, and that that tribunals have found that, um, that, you know, temporarily limited deprivation of an investment can constitute an expropriation nevertheless. Um, so, for example, I think it was the Middle East cement versus Egypt case where the suspension of an export license for four months was deemed an expropriation, as was a temporary loss of control over the investment for a year in the Bina Hotels All Egypt right, yeah, case. Right. So, yeah. um, there's also an interesting point here on the fact that uh, maybe the forced bailout at an unusually low valuation may give rise for claims for fair compensation, as in Ping and Life Insurance Company of China versus Belgium, where the investor alleged that the Belgium's government forced bailout of Fortis during the financial crisis was expropriatory because of that. Um, so, and, and, and as, you know, to go back to that point of compensation, um, I think that's that's the key one here. It's not, you know, the mere fact that a state didn't intend to expropriate the investment doesn't foreclose also liability. It's also uh, an important point. So in uh, Spurden Rusalis versus Romania, the tribunal noted that intent is relevant, although not decisive as to whether there was an expropriation. Um, similarly, in Vivendi versus Argentina, the tribunal rejected a state's attempt to justify as a benign regulatory measure, noting that there is extensive authority for the proposition that the state's intent or its objective motives uh, are at most a secondary consideration. The effect of the measure on the investor, not the state's intent, is the critical factor. So that's also, uh, I think, um, important. Now, expropriation, we can go on and on and on about it. I think another, um, of course, grounds which Joe has um, said is fair and equitable treatment, which is a possible ground on which an investor might bring a coronavirus-related treaty claim. Um, Now, interestingly, if a state, for example, downplayed the risk of coronavirus, like some of the states have done... Sweden. Let's not open this kind of word. Well, actually, Sweden, <laughs> it's an interesting example because Sweden is still, let's see what happens in the future, because Sweden at least is being consistent with its measures, right? Thank you. Uh, yes. Trans- whereas, transparent, predictable, reliable, all these Swedish virtues that no government way. is exhibiting. <laughs> but at least they, they've, they haven't changed their course of action with respect, at least 
that I know of. But in the UK, they have started by talking about the herd immunity stuff as this <laughs> herd immunity well, yeah, they stuff. Delayed, like, they delayed their action. I wouldn't know if it was like inconsistent per se, but the action could have been swifter if they had chosen a path sooner. Yes. yes. There's that. And also from an investor perspective, maybe they just didn't, they relied on a state taking certain measures. And then, you know, afterwards, the other measures were announced by the state. So maybe that would be considered a FET violation. Um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe some tribunals would consider that would be considered a violation of your legitimate expectation. Um, I think the threshold to prove such a violation is super high. So it's going to be difficult. Um, yeah, especially in the circumstances of what's going especially on. Especially like in the circumstances. In, in, a, in a normal, through. like in a vacuum situation with, with without a virus, of course, announcing something and then two weeks later reversing course completely might be problematic. But given how things change on a day-to-day basis right now, it, I think there's a larger margin for the states to actually reverse course. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's that's the point. And where I'm going to discuss the defenses in a, in a little while as well. Um, but to go back to our discussion earlier about Sweden and the UK and um, and to quote TechMet versus Mexico, the important thing is that states act in a consistent manner, free from anxiety and totally transparently. There might be some arguments made about that <laughs> with respect to certain states. Um <laughs> I mean, for example, in Azurix versus Argentina, the tribunal found that Argentina's misrepresentation regarding its failures to adequately, adequately remove uh, algae from the water was a consideration for finding a breach of the FED standard as the misrepresentation contributed to water quality crisis. Um, that's, that's, I thought, it, it's not exactly the same here, but uh, it's, an it's an interesting example. Um, We've had a whole discussion separately in, in a WhatsApp thread with, with some other colleagues of ours about the, um, some people speculating about whether or not you can bring China to the International Court of Justice, not for an investment treaty breach, but for a breach mm -hmm. of some other uh, dubious uh, norm of international law because the way uh, that China allegedly downplayed the, mm. the severity of the crisis initially and the consequences that had uh, it's sort of a, an analogous to an investment treaty claim here. Yes, exactly. And I, I think I'm going to just get to that in a second. I was going to talk oh, about full protection sorry. and security as well, which, which, is, which I might link to that. But just to finish up on the FET point, and it could also be a breach of FET, what you're mentioning. Um, tribunals have taken, of course, into account non-arbitrariness and proportionality, um, which I think in this specific case will be very important, right, when assessing states' conduct under the FET standard. Um, and this is the key difference with expropriation, of course, where the standard is primarily objective and effects-oriented. So in the context of the virus, it seems likely that state responses will attract a large margin of appreciation mm. from mm. a tribunal. Um, in fact, and I thought that was interesting, and it was referred to in the GAR article by Arb Lit lawyers, uh, Benatitili and others, um, who, and I quote, uh, said, such considerations may lead arbitral tribunals to take a self-restrained approach, also seeking guidance from certain international law principles that have emerged in the neighboring field of international environmental law and which could be applied mutatis mutandis to determine the right balance among the conflicting interests at bar, namely the precautionary, prevention, and sustainable development principles set 
out in the United Nations 92 Rio Declaration on Environment and Development. That was interesting. Um, full protection and security, like you mentioned, uh, we talked about measures that were taken, but we could there could also be cases uh, for measures that were not taken, or at least the delayed treatment of that. Um, because under the full protection and security standard, um, which are which is often containing the same very same provision of the BID as the FET standards, standard states in the words of one tribunal must take all measures of precaution to protect the investment and its territory. Um, and of course, it encompasses more than the physical security of the investment. Uh, see, for example, by Water Gulf Tribunal held that it would be unduly artificial to restrict the center to physical security of investment. Mm. So in this context, if you took, um, you know, a very laid back approach like the one you described with respect to China or other countries to the virus, uh, that could have backfired if, as a result, the investor sees unnecessary disruption to their business in the future. So, or in Sweden, for example. <laughs> um National treatment, uh, really quickly. Um, so even if the government's addressed the coronavirus through public health measures, they're attempting to pop up economies and industries through obviously extraordinary governmental action. Um, and it is plausible that a foreign investor excluded from a bailout on the basis of merit, you know, merit foreign ownership might bring a claim under the national treatment standard, um, especially in the context of closing um, you know, uh, the boundaries and et cetera. And if you're taking measures to protect your national industries, uh, query as to whether that would be considered a breach of national treatment. Now, of course, these are all the potential grounds you can bring a treaty claim for. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more now about the potential defenses for um, a state. Um, now, I'm not going to talk too much about force majeure because... We've already addressed that. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to refer you guys to earlier talks about that. And especially in the investment treaty context, I would like more to talk about two core defenses here. A, the defense of necessity. Let's start with that one. Um, necessity can be invoked by state to preclude wrongfulness under two distinct doctrines. So first, uh, investment treaties will often allow the state to take measures necessary to protect its essential security interest. So while on its face the term appears to relate primarily to situation of military conflict, it has, of course, been interpreted surprisingly broadly. For example, in LGE Argentina, the tribunal accepted that the severe economic crisis constituted an essential security interest as to conclude that such a severe economic crisis could not constitute an essential security interest is to diminish the avoc that the economy can wreck on the lives of an entire population and the ability of the government to lead. End of quotation. So it seems likely here that the government's response to coronavirus might fall under the same broad definition of security interests if um, this approach were applied to the public health emergency situation. Um, second, of course, customary under a customary international law, the doctrine of necessity to exclude the wrongfulness of the states. Um, you could, sorry, you could rely on the customary international law of the doctrine of necessity under the draft articles of state responsibility, article 25. Uh, necessity may be invoked to preclude a wrongfulness where a the act is the only way for the state to safeguard an essential interest against the grave and imminent peril two 
um, the act does not seriously impair an essential interest of another state towards which the obligation is owed. And three, the state did not contribute to the situation of necessity. Um, I just realized I often do that, like A, one, two, three. That's so disruptive of me. It should be A, B, C, or one, two, three. Apologies about that. <laughs> <laughs> Apology accepted. Yeah. Um, so again, even if the measures that are taken to protect health are necessary, which, you know, we might all argue that is, you know, correct, the non-contribution requirement and the requirement that the measures be the only viable way to address the state of necessity pose considerable uh, impediments here. Um, now, this one, and thank you, uh, Kellen, for the research, because I thought that was extremely interesting. There's a case... Um, there's two really interesting cases. The first one here is the South American Civil Tribunal noted that the customary defense of necessity only excuses the wrongfulness of the breach of the primary obligation. So a state's duty not to expropriate, but not the secondary obligation to compensation, right? So that's also a key point I think people forget often. So accordingly, the customary defense of necessity will likely be of little use to states in avoiding a duty to compensate. The second case that is interesting, and here... Uh, before going into that, it's called the Bishop case of 1903, a long time ago, uh, which was before the German-Venezuela Mixed Claims Commission. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it was a case that referred to the, and that's the second one that I wanted to talk about uh, uh, the, the, of the defense, is the police powers doctrine. Um, and so treaties, particularly recently treaties, for example, the Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement between Canada and EU, may contain an explicit carve-out for non-discriminatory regulatory measures designed to protect, protect public health. Um, and there's also the example of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, which goes further by providing that non-discriminatory measures implemented for legitimate public welfare objectors shall not be subject of a claim. Um, but why is that Bishop case interesting is because even in the absence of such a provisions, uh, such a provision, states likely have a strong argument that the coronavirus-related measures are lawful, uh, because so that in that case, before the German-Venezuela Mixed uh, Claims Commission, the claimant was a German national whose carriage was taken by Venezuelan police in the midst of a smallpox epidemic, wrongly believing that the carriage had previously transported two infected persons. Um, the carriage was damaged in Venezuelan custody, and when the Venezuelan authorities attempted to return the carriage to the claimant, the claimant refused to accept it unless compensation uh, was awarded for the damage. And at the commission, Germany admitted that the taking was in good faith due to the smallpox ep uh, epidemic, but that Venezuela was nevertheless required to compensate for the expropriation. Um, so the empire in that case, so read the sole arbitrator, was called Duffield, held that during an epidemic of an infectious disease, and I'm quoting here, there can be no liability for the reasonable exercise of police power, even though a mistake is made. Accordingly, the claimant was not entitled to the full scope of damages to the carriage. Uh, that's a case from 1904. Can we have a bet as to whether people are going to refer to it in these COVID-19 related cases? Oh, yeah. Number one. Uh, yeah. Um, in fact, I think it was cited in the Philip Morris case, too. And talking of which, <laughs> talking of which, the evil, evil example of why there's been a big backlash against investment treaty arbitration. 
Uh, so in Philip Morris versus Uruguay, the investor claimed that Uruguay's anti-smoking regulations constitute an expropriation for those who are not familiar with the case um, under the Swiss-Uruguay BIT. Uh, Philip Morris argued that the prohibition on expropriation applied without any regard for the public purpose of the expropriatory measures such that Uruguay was bound to compensate the company no matter how well-founded its public health concerns were. Pretty daunting to say that. The tribunal rejected this view, finding that the power to protect public health was an essential manifestation of a state's police powers and a component of general international law, and I'm quoting here, and they refer to the Vienna Convention of Law of Treaties, Article 31.3c, that require that the BIT's expropriation provision be interpretation, interpreted uh, pardon me, in the light of any irrelevant rules of international law applicable to the relations between the parties, including customary international law. And the tribunal accordingly held that public health measures that are proportionate, taken in good faith, and non-discriminatory will generally not constitute indirect expropriation. Um, so given the scope of this broad exception, it seems likely that to the extent uh, an expropriation claim can be litigated, the meaningful places of disagreement between claimant investors and states will be limited to these areas. Were the measures proportionate? Did the government seek to take advantage of the crisis to expropriate investments? Did the government place a disproportionate burden on foreign investors? Was there an ulterior motive for the government action? Were there less restrictive measures that might have been taken? Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's also a mention, interesting mention of, you know, there, the European Court of Human Rights that could be applicable, which, um, which obviously uh, applies to all European countries. And there's a fundamental right to health, uh, which is granted to all. Are people going to trigger that provision as well um, to excuse um, or excuse or explain the measures that were taken uh, by states or not taken by states? Um, I am going to end it here because I could go on and on and on about the potential cases. I'm not going to take any views as to whether such a, you know, claims would be successful or not. Of course, it would depend on a case by case basis. Um, and this is not the objective of our podcast to give uh, legal advice, right? Well, <laughs> just just, I just wanted to chime in quickly, especially with the Philip Morris case, because there was like a lot of dicta and the tribunal was really persuaded by the scientific evidence behind the yeah. harms of smoking. And the problem that I see with any kind of claim based off COVID-19 is that there, the evidence, it's still so inconclusive what it is, what the harms are. Um, so for them to like, bring a Philip Morris type of argument, it would be very difficult for them to put the science in front of the tribunal and say that this was proportionate or disproportionate to what the harm was. Basically, mm -hmm. we're all combating against an unknown. So did the, tri did the government act properly when combating an unknown pandemic? You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. And especially, I think what... Um even if you start comparing between countries, like for example, like Korea did this early on and, you know, Sweden took completely different measures and right. look at what, you know, what India is doing or Australia. Uh, I mean, it's how, it, can you compare? There's also a question, right? Scientifically, like is, is was the effect of. Yeah. Or what works. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's very difficult. So that's a, that's a very good point. It's that, that's, I, it is a great point, but I, I'm guessing that the, the test is still subjective and, and uh, the criteria laid down in Philip Morris would still apply that the proportionate good faith, non-discriminatory based on 
the available data at the time, of mm -hmm. course. And it would still like it. It sounds like at least applying this test that most states, like the average state and the average measure that we all know about, should be in the clear applying this test, e even if, as you say, Brian, it's not really. Uh, we don't have the benefit of of all the research we would want now as policymakers. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. That's, That's an, an attempt to strike a hopeful mm, tone yeah. at the end of the segment. <laughs> sure. And just for the sake of completion, I think because I mentioned the Arbert uh, article on GAR, there's been plenty of other posts that were extremely interesting to read on this topic, um, including uh, one from uh, Lucas Bento and sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, Jinchen Chen of Queen Emmanuel on cooler arbitration and Frederica Padu and Kate Parlett of the University of Cambridge and 20 Essex Street, uh, respectively, who also have a blog on core arb uh, in arbitration, who is, which is free, um, and so people can access those posts. It sounds like interested. I will will have to post a lot of links when we upload this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, well, let's crack a beer, and regardless of the hour in whatever country you're in, and <laughs> to have a fun time. Now we are moving on to the happy fun time topic, which is compensation. And as I um, I address address the two um, <laughs> ideas that we have towards uh, lawyers' compensation in the introduction, we can revisit that now. Which is, are we grossly overpaid, entitled uh, people, or are we uh, just slaves to the machine that are getting actually? completely underpaid compared to the amount of hours that we are working. That is the discussion on the table. And the reason why we're bringing it up in this episode is because during this COVID-19 uh, crisis, there have been a lot of firms that have really felt the cash crunch, or they are trying to navigate from any kind of type of future issues that are going to come up for the firm. And the reason being is that when you have a partnership structure, they extract all the cash out of the business and uh, they don't have anything left in to combat a horrible pandemic like this when you have associates making six-figure salaries. So some firms have implemented and these have actually been announced and I think the reason for their announcements can vary, but um, some of the firms have announced that they have um, implemented some sort of cost-conscious uh, measurements or measures to um, combat this crisis and what some of them have done is taken pay cuts um, either the partners have taken pay cuts or the partners have taken dividend cuts um, to keep the cash in the business some uh, firms have cut associate salaries some have done what's called furloughing of support staff um, for example receptionists that haven't been able to go into the office um, and so, and across the board, we see different measurements and I think it has to do measures. And I think it has to do with the fact that different firms are feeling, uh, different pres pressures from different brackets of their employees. Um, now this came up in a discussion I was having with a friend that basically was celebrating the fact that her firm was doing fine and celebrating the fact that their bonuses were not being affected or their pay raises would still be able to be negotiated for next year. And I'm sitting here at the reading the news and thinking about all the other people that have lost their jobs and are filing for unemployment and thinking to myself, should we be celebrating the fact that we're um, sitting in our little towers or should we be uh, welcoming a 20% reduction for the sake of the firm and falling on the sword with our brethren? 
uh, query <laughs> to you both, but uh, <laughs> I think it is. Um, I think it is quite interesting uh, discussion. First of all, who should take the cut when? Uh, who should take it first? Um, and whether these cuts are, we should be complaining about any cuts, considering the fortunate circumstances we find ourselves in financially sometimes in this profession. Mm. <clears throat> so. Jill, the non the non private practice, please. There you go. First. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know there are, there will be boring modifications to this uh, as you guys convince me, but I do feel as my 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 point of entry here is that why we are paying nurses on the front line in applause, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's their salary right now. Uh, yeah. It feels a bit strange to to open chapter one hundred forty seven of the Crimea River book about how. <laughs> Poor corporate lawyers are undercompensated. Uh, it is not the conversation we should be having. You should just uh, shut up and be happy that you are grossly overpaid. That's my starting point. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have to tend to agree with that. I think that um, we find ourselves in an unfortunate position. And if you take it, to, and considering a lot of firms are in a lockstep system, if they give you a 20% cut, even if they do like a 15% cut or a 10% cut, a lockstep system usually puts your salary up a bit every year or let's say the most every two years. Um, mm -hmm. So you're basically just going back a year in your salary. You're not taking a massive cut uh, from your salary. So I don't think I don't think it's a huge issue with these cuts. But I think um, if they are going to implement the cuts, I think the partners need to take a the hit first and b um, in may per perhaps in a greater proportion to the associates given uh the great wage disparity between an associate and and a partner plus the fact that they're pulling out dividends and that's essentially the cash of the uh and the profits yeah. for the for the firm but yeah i would i would agree like if we're talking about who is supposed to take the cut like you know None of us, none of us, three of us are, are partners. So that's it, isn't it? <laughs> it's very comfortable for us to be like, yeah, of course, like partners. Solitary. Cut. <laughs> yeah, and don't touch my salary. Um, yeah, well, you know, in a way, I, I think, I, I do think it's fair. I think it's fair. It's part of the business, right? It's part of uh, of any business. You're taking, um, you, 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 know, you share profit, you share loss. Yeah. And I think um, this is very much a Swedish, <laughs> like what I have learned in Swedish culture, and especially at my old firm, which had, a, a, it, they promoted a true partnership, which is basically, you rise and fall with the firm bonuses mm -hmm. were only allowed if the firm reached a certain level. And in that sense, everyone re received the same uh, level of bonus depending on your seniority. So it was really truly equal uh, across the firm. And that's kind of what goes to the con side of all of this, which is you have people during this crisis that are working from home, billing 12 hours a day, um, killing themselves and other people who their hearings have been moved six months and therefore mm -hmm. have a gap in work that have nothing to do. Um, and if the firm just across the board says no more bonuses for next year and you're the one who's actually, you know, busting to get work done during this crisis and and make yeah. hours um then maybe you do have you know something to complain about <laughs> yeah and also like you know um and, and again it's it's a general discussion but i think a lot of people are um asked to uh, not ask but it's just because there is work there's uh, we, we can't just say that a work all work has stopped i think there there's there's been a lot of um you know work arising out of this crisis in fact mm -hmm. especially for um 
uh, dispute resolution lawyers, so you know arbitration lawyers basically. Um, and and clients have been asking for responses, immediate responses, as always. <laughs> right. Uh, and we were talking about being sympathetic earlier. I think uh, some are more or less sympathetic. Um, and and if you consider, you know, people are working uh, at the, in their homes with their families and their young children. It's uh, and some people are doing that. How do you do that? And apart from working late nights and just you know basically switching your whole you know day around, so you basically have to work all the time, which is you know either taking care of the kids and working in addition for your right. employer. It's difficult, right? And then it, to that person, if you tell them, hey, sorry. Um, salary cut, you know, no more bonus, no more this and that. Um, it, it's not, it's not Crimea River because everyone basically is is being affected by those measures. I think, but it's I understand if if some there there will be some discontent uh, from some people. If they well, are, so here you know, is exactly. I think you're presenting the counter argument, which is the fact that we're paid this premium because we're expected to take our computers and phones on every vacation we'll ever go on until the day we die. Hmm. We're expected to work at all hours <laughs> of the night if required. We're expected to cancel plans if needed. Like this is the premium that you get paid for. And then as well, if you actually break down the billable hours that you're expected to do, not only for your minimums, but to get bonus or to kind of move up in the ranks and to make partner in the future. Mm -hmm. If you break that down, what you're paid per hour is like cents on the dollar. So um, if you're talking about getting an hourly rage for what you do, it's, you know, and, and especially in comparison to what you're billing the client, um, yeah. it, it's quite interesting to think about whether you feel entitled to be paid more when you're staying up till 3 a.m. for multiple weeks in a row and canceling your trip to, you know, France because um, your hearing got moved or an interim measure application was filed. So, um, and then to get cut or to say that you're not getting a raise and you're not getting a bonus because of that, it's maybe a tougher pill to swallow for the harder working individuals. Yeah, and I doubt <laughs> that they're going to be making, you know, some non-general um, you know, decisions. I mean, I, I don't, I, I really think it's going to be hard for a firm to make case by case decisions I, I, next year. Yeah. You know, I think they're just going to be like, sorry, COVID-19, you know, no, um, no raise, no promotions, no this, no that. Um, um, and be happy that you still have a job. <laughs> you're still paid basically. Well, that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that is a helpful bottom line. Although we, I assume all of us hang out primarily with lawyers, we also have non-lawyer friends in different positions. And a lot of people yeah. obviously have lost their jobs right yes, now. Of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was just complaining the other day to, um, to my parents, actually. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, I have to work and I have to do this and that. And they were like, oh my gosh, you are such a spoiled person you were so privileged and you have no idea like having a job in itself is so privileged in this current situation i was like ah yeah that's true i guess that that's, true. That's, yeah. that's true i was complaining yeah. to james he's like at least you have something to do during yeah. the day <laughs> during this. but i mean it, if to link yeah. the two segments i mean he he owns a modeling agency and models need to travel and so his business is completely at zero due to the travel bans oh, um right. and so then i mean if you're linking that with whether he would have a claim i mean that it's clearly not to the level that would justify an investment in arbitration yeah. but it's um that type of like completely destroying a business based off the regulations and then if you compare someone like this who's like really mm -hmm. dealing with a income of zero because these mm -hmm. his commodity mm -hmm. cannot move 
um, to someone who's like, well, I'm not getting my like 20, 25% bonus uh, mm-hmm. this year. I think you really need to like eat a bit of crow before you. <laughs> <laughs> at, the, at the same time, though, it's, I mean, the, the, the pain and the complaints, they are not relative. It's also hard to, to compare your own situation with, with someone else because you may have made plans, serious plans, financial plans, mortgages, mm-hmm. undertakings that are yeah. based off of a, a projection that is mm-hmm. your own. And mm-hmm. you still have to, to make sacrifices. even if. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. What about hiring? Are there? I haven't been teaching obviously for a while now since I started working for for chambers. So I haven't been in touch with with students who are about to graduate. Is there a general hiring freeze the same way we saw after the financial crisis, or are firms still hiring juniors? Well, this kind of goes to the who takes the who takes the hit question because I've heard uh, from a friend of mine that during the two thousand eight crisis the freeze happened on the junior levels and the payment freezes and all the, all that stuff happened on the junior levels and that created quite a backlash from mm. the legal community and so now the partners are trying to take the hit so i think if they take enough of a hit they're going to be able to kind of maintain uh their hiring processes especially in the u.s when you have these like second year associates turning into or training contracts here in the uk where they you know offer positions i think those still may be able to happen we've had a couple of partners being starting during this during the lockdown and i think it had oh to do because gosh. negotiations were probably underway before yeah um, mm. so they just had a start date but um you see these types of things and you're like okay well are they trying to just continue the movement forward because the thing is and this is what you hear with other people with businesses is that when the when the lockdown is over you need a firm that runs again yeah you can't just like have a build-up of like okay now let's start the hiring process again and and that takes a couple of months. Like if you have a need, the second the lockdown is over and business starts moving again, like the, it's different than a than a proper recession or a proper depression. Um, this is just kind of like a blip that has sunk everything to zero, and then it will go back up to hopefully somewhat normal. Yeah, right. Hopefully, after. hopefully, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> yeah, but it will have such economic, long-lasting economic effects right. on our on on our clients and so True. on us, right? True. So. Even if we you had an existing wait. case um, that was ongoing and it was just just postponed to later, you know, query as to whether our clients are going to, you know, be able to pay the fees that were negotiated before um, and willing to, you know, pay moving forward as well. Um, so I think it's going to have a lot of impact in the future as well on, on and a lot sure. of stress for or dear partners that are taking the part Absolutely. right now. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'll have a moment of silence. Yeah, yeah, for their chateau in Switzerland. Let's have a moment <laughs> of silence. Um, but, I mean, you can just advocate your client to have a virtual hearing and save them costs in the back end. So there you go. Oh, I was uh, looking for a hopeful <laughs> sentiment. That's uh, grasping for straws, yes. but sure. There we go. But um, I think that can yeah. wind us up. Yeah, exactly. I think it links up with the previous topics as well. It's like the future of saving costs um, for everyone, right? So yeah. we're going to be doing more of those virtual hearings and so yeah, on. Maybe my New Year's resolution about making arbitration less sexy is actually about to happen now. Not, <laughs> not on purpose. Maybe we'll all just end up traveling. What's less yeah. sexier? That to not like it was sexy. Oh, to travel for hearings. Yeah, no more conferences oh, right. and and hearings and cross continental travel. Now we're all just lawyers sitting with our laptops in our homes in the future. Maybe maybe I got what I asked for. Yeah, I <laughs> well, think congrats, you're right. Joel. Thank you. Congrats. Thank you. It's all thanks to you, Joel. 
<laughs> well, uh, thank you guys. Thank you to Callum and Rishi for chipping in on this research. You guys did a great job again. Thank you, Jan, for editing. Contact us at the arbitration station at gmail.com or at the arb station on Twitter. Yes, it's been really nice talking to you guys. This is helpful. We should all keep in mind that this is also a time to reconnect with people that, that we like and that we yeah. like to have around us. It's nice to Agreed. vent Agreed. a little bit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, take care, you guys. Stay safe and stay home. Bye. Bye.